I know that some of you may have heard this story before, but it's a story of a little girl who attended a wedding for the first time. She had never been to a wedding before, and so she was very curious at all of the trappings of what a wedding entails. The little girl whispered to her mother as she had many questions, and so her first question was, Mother, why is the bride wearing white? Her mother said, Child, because white is the color of happiness, and today is the happiest day of her life. The little girl thought about it for a minute, then asked, Why then is the groom wearing black? As I see what is happening to families and marriages these days, my heart is filled with sadness. This funny illustration, unfortunately, is coming true in our culture today. For many, the married family life has turned into the unhappiest times of our lives. Part of the reason, I believe, is because we have abdicated the responsibilities we have as Christians in our families. We have abdicated the responsibilities to our families that we have. While this message will primarily focus on the relationship between husbands and wives, this message is for all. Remember how you treat one another as husband and wife is modeling a marriage for your children when they get older. And it serves as a testimony, good and bad, to the world. For those of you who are not yet married, perhaps as we talk about these things, these are the principles or these are the qualities you can look out for in your future spouse. Or perhaps, if you are not yet married, these are the qualities you can cultivate in yourself. Not necessarily in preparation for marriage, but simply as a godly man or a godly woman. I remember someone recollecting once, when I was a young man, I vowed never to marry, never to lower my standards until I found the ideal woman. Well, I finally found the ideal woman, but alas... She didn't want me because she was waiting for the ideal man. So it is for many who are not yet married, wondering and looking for the ideal perfect person and yet forgetting that they need to cultivate in their own life the desire to be the ideal young man or young woman that God would want to give another to. If you are a teenager or a child in a dysfunctional home, in a broken family, perhaps as we talk about the model of marriage that the Bible talks about, these are the specific things you can be praying for that God would instill in your parents. Or perhaps if you don't have a good model of marriage to look up to in your parents' married life, then what we're going to talk about in First Peter this morning can serve as a biblical model for how you can model your future marriage. And so this morning we take a look at the responsibility we have to our family as we continue our sermon series entitled, Own Up, A Call for Personal Responsibility. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of First Peter, chapter 3, as we take a look at verses 1 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. 
as we continue our study in this wonderful book. Now, as we take a look at these 12 verses, we're going to talk about three areas of responsibilities. The first area in verses 1 to 6 is the responsibility of the wives. The second area in verse 7 is the responsibility of the husbands. The third will be the responsibility for all members of the family, whether you are a child, a teenager, or a parent or a grandparent. The responsibility of the wives, followed by the responsibility of the husbands, and then finally the responsibilities of all members of the family. Now, as you're scanning ahead, as some of you are doing, you may wonder, why is it that the responsibility of the wives is six verses, and the responsibility of the husband is only one verse in verse 7? You may think that it would be very unfair. I think the God who created us, who inspired the biblical text, understand that women like to elaborate on things. They want things explained, so it takes six verses to explain the principle where for the men, they like it right to the point. And so only one verse. But do not worry. The Bible has two responsibilities for both the husbands and the wives. So there is equality there. So let's take a look at what the biblical text says this morning. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied with fear. Now, the context of this passage is in a household, and specifically between husbands and wives. This does not mean that all women are to submit to all men. But what the Bible is talking about is order in the home as God intended. And the order of spiritual authority as God has intended in the home is that God is number one at the head, followed by the husband, and then the wife, and then the children. Therefore, in God's hierarchy for order in the household, the wife is to submit to her husband. Now, the meaning of submission has the idea of being under authority, as we talked about last week, the responsibility of submission. Many do not like the concept of submission, especially as it relates to the relationship between husband and wife. And yet, G.F. Watkins notes that we can look at it one of two ways. He says, submission can be seen as either a lid or a covering. It's the same thing. You can either look at it as a lid or as a covering. A lid will hold you down, but a covering will protect you. For many people, they think that submission is like a lid. It's to push down the woman, or the woman is never able to push up. And yet that's the wrong concept, because the biblical concept is that submission is like a covering. It is to protect the woman. It is to protect the family. Some women are sitting here this morning, and they're thinking to themselves, you know what, how does this work out? I'm so much smarter than my husband. And you probably are. 
Or you may be thinking, I'm so much better than my husband, and you probably are. But the emphasis of these two verses is that for there to be order in the household, so that your household does not descend into anarchy, there must be an order of authority. There must be a hierarchical structure, just like there is in government, as we talked about last week. To prevent anarchy, there must be a hierarchy of authority. So it is in your offices, so that each person doesn't do what they want to do, and that there is order instead of anarchy, there must be a hierarchy of authority. So it is in the household. Now, this does not mean that if a husband tells a wife to do something, she must do it. If the husband tells his wife to do something against the will of God or against the law that he has set, then she should not do it. Remember, as we talked about last week, the laws of God always take precedence over the laws of men, including that of a husband. But the implication of these two verses is that with all things being equal, in a tiebreaker, there is nothing morally right or wrong with the decision Then the wife is to defer to the husband and to submit to his authority, knowing that he is under the authority of God. And the husband must answer to God. I like what Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, says about this. She says, It's my job to love and to submit to my husband. It's God's job to make him good. You understand that? She says, It's my job to love and submit to my husband. It's God's job to make him good. And so this biblical principle of submitting to husbands doesn't only apply if you've got a good husband, a very kind one. You are to submit to your husband, period. And that's the first responsibility of the wives, number one, if you're taking notes. Submit to those in authority. Submit specifically to husbands. If you can't find it in your heart to submit, remember, we also have a responsibility towards submission. It is a responsibility. is what God calls us to do. Now, you may be thinking this morning, but my husband isn't taking the leadership. My husband just sits there, and I try to prod him, but he doesn't see him to do anything. He, he doesn't move. It reminds me of a story of an exchange between Mark Twain, that great American writer, and a Mormon from Utah. Mormonism, as many of you know, is a cult, uh, and they once practiced polygamy, the practice of having multiple wives. After a long and rather heated debate between Mark Twain and this Mormon, the Mormon finally said, Twain, can you find for me a single passage of Scripture that forbids polygamy? Mark Twain replies, certainly, is that passage where it says, no man can serve two masters. If your husband is not taking leadership, perhaps the issue is because you are not letting him. In your impatience, you are letting him off too easily as you make decisions for him and for the family. I know it's very difficult 
But you may just have to sit there and wait for him until he desires and decides to make a decision. Generally, you should know that men are lazy. And men are more than happy to let their wives make all the decisions. And if they have a wife that makes all the decisions, they're taking more power to them. That makes my life really easy. Don't let your husbands off the hook so easily. Don't make all the decisions for him. And this biblical truth is true for all types of couples. It doesn't only apply to a relationship where the husband has a strong personality, but it also applies to a relationship where the husband has a quieter personality. The Bible says it is the responsibility of the wife to submit to her husband. Now look at verse 1 again. Why should a woman submit to her husband? The Bible says that they may be won by the conduct of their wives. That they can win their husbands over for Jesus Christ. Especially in the context of a Christian wife and a non-believing husband. Through the submission of the wife, through her conduct, she will win her husband to Jesus. And what a great reason to submit. The wives are to submit to their husbands because in that the Lord is pleased. You may be better than your husband, talent-wise. You may have more capabilities. But the Bible says it honors me, it pleases me when wives submit to their husbands. That is the order of the household that I have created. Now, you may not agree with the decisions of your husbands, and you don't have to tell them you agree with them. You can tell them, the reason I submit to you is not because you're right. The reason I submit to your decision is because you must answer to God, and I want to live in honor to God. Give them a reason. You can state that you do not agree with their decision, but help them remember In their decision, they are answerable to God. And that your submission is because of your desire to please God with your life. That will get him thinking. As John Piper defines submission in this context, he writes, Submission is a defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so help to carry it through according to her gifts. I like that. Submission is a defined calling. It is a calling upon and incumbent upon a woman, a wife. It is her responsibility to do what? To honor and affirm her husband's leadership, to encourage her husband's leadership. And so with the gifts and talents that God has given her, encourage her husband to take on the role that God has placed upon his life. And that's why God often puts together two people who are in their personality very different. If you have a very quiet husband, you often have a very strong wife. It's okay. This biblical principle still holds true because in the strength of that woman's personality and her talents, she has the resources to encourage her husband to take on the leadership mantle. Quiet men 
can still be amazing leaders in the household. And I look at my own father, who is very quiet in his personality, and yet has a strength of spiritual leadership in our home. This has nothing to do with personality. But husbands, you better give ample reasons for your wife to want to submit to you, to be under your authority, and we'll get to you later. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The first responsibility for wives and women are to submit to authority, submit to husbands. The second responsibility is to cultivate an inner beauty, number two. To cultivate an inner beauty of one's character instead of focusing on one's outer beauty. Now note very carefully in the scriptural text that the Bible does not say you can't fix yourself up outwardly. The Bible does not say you can't arrange your hair, wear jewelry or fine clothes. What the Bible is saying in verse 3 and 4 is do not focus on these things that define your beauty. Many women define their beauty by their outward appearance. What the Bible is saying is do not focus on your outward appearance to define what is beauty. Where does genuine beauty come from? The Bible tells us right here in verse 4. The Bible says genuine beauty comes from the beauty of one's inner life, specifically in a gentle and quiet spirit, a heart that is introspective, a heart that is full of wisdom. You know, God in his infinite wisdom, has uniquely created men and women. And he has created women with a spiritual sensitivity that often men do not have. That's why historically, and even in this church, there have always been more women in the church than men. Because God has uniquely created women with a great sensitivity. And it's something to be valued. It's something that you should build on to cultivate your inner beauty. This has nothing to do, again, with personality type. It has to do with a strong spirit, a strength of character that can weather adversity and that can weather unjust suffering. And look what verse 4 says. It is a beauty that is incorruptible. That is how God has wired women and that is how God has wired men. And yes, men are very visual and they are very much attracted to beautiful things. But in the depth of attraction, as we've already talked about in our study of Song of Solomon, if men are honest with themselves, they are attracted to women of character. They are attracted to women who have a strength in their inner beauty. Now, I'm going to get in trouble for saying what I'm about to say. Please don't be offended. All women will age. All men as well. But women, you will age. And if your life is simply about physical beauty, then your husband will lose attraction for you as you age. That's the truth. If your focus is on physical beauty, you and I will age. 
And as you age, because men are very visual, they will lose attraction for you. Again, I'm going to get in trouble for saying what I'm about to say. But I cannot lie on this pulpit. My wife is not as physically beautiful as she was when she was 25 when I first met her. She's not. She's not as beautiful as she was before she was the mother to my three children. And neither am I in her eyes. However, the truth of the matter is, as she grows in age, she also grows in beauty in my eyes. Honestly, because she is growing in her spiritual character. As she matures spiritually, I love her more. And if you can discover this truth, your marriage will last into the golden years of your life as God allows All of us age. That's why the Bible says, shift in beauty, focusing not on the outward, but on the inward. And so it is in what I'm discovering now, that the beauty of my wife grows because the beauty of her inner character is deepened and developed. I trust her more. I seek her counsel more. I'm more comfortable with her because I know of her walk with God. And there's a depth of beauty there. That if you can discover, men especially, you will know love, an intimate love, like you've never known before. Verse 5 and verse 6. Peter gives an example. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God have adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror. The Apostle Peter is a married man. He wants to see if these principles hold true. And so he goes back to the Old Testament to support his emphasis that it is a submissive spirit and an inner beauty of character that is the lasting beauty and attractiveness of this life. And Peter uses the example of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And if you remember the story of Sarah, even in her old age, what does the Bible say about Sarah? She was very beautiful. The wife of Abraham, Sarah, was one who was submissive to her husband and called him Lord. Now, husbands, do not go home or do not be nudging your wife this morning and say, ah, you better call me Lord and Master. If you do that, that is the wrong application to this message, and your wife will not talk to you for three days. Notice the importance of this. The importance is on the person of Sarah. She honored God by submitting to the will of Abraham. And notice in verse 5 a very important phrase. Sarah obeyed Abraham. However, if you look before in verse 5, these are women who trusted in God. It takes a lot of trust for you to obey your husband. It takes a lot of trust for you to cultivate your inner beauty, knowing that it is that inner beauty that your man will be attracted to you as both of you age. That trust is centered on trusting God 
to work in the hearts of your husband so that he will be kind to you and that he will change and that he will be faithful to you. We hold on to the responsibilities that God has given in the Scriptures. Don't miss that. If a wife does not trust, then she will manipulate. And it is in the manipulation of things that trouble starts. I like the story of a jealous wife. Uh, There was a jealous wife and her husband, a man, worked in an office with several attractive women. His wife, constantly jealous, had a list of questions ready every day for him when he came back home from work. Who would you talk to? Did this person discuss something with you? Did this person go to your office? She would even examine his wool coat. And if you know anything about wool coats, they, 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 with the static, they attract a lot of types of hair. She would examine his coat, and if she found a blonde hair, she would accuse her husband, you're having an affair with a blonde woman. If she found a red hair or a black hair or a brown hair, the accusations would come. You're having an affair with a woman with red hair or black hair or brown hair. Finally, this man, so tired of his wife's accusation, finally bought a lint brush and kept it in the car. Before he would enter the house, he would take the lint brush and rub off all the hair that it collected on his wool coat. And so on this first time, he expected that his wife would not have so many questions and she would greet him with a smile, finding nothing on his wool coat. As he came home through the front door, she examined his coat, finding no hair. Instead of a smile, she began to cry loudly. He said, what's wrong, honey? She screamed at him. Now you're having an affair with a bald woman. If you cannot learn to trust God, to work things out in your life, that you can submit and fulfill the responsibilities that he has called you to do as a wife, then you always live in fear and terror, as the end of verse 6 tells us. And then in that, we know what women do. Generally, they begin to manipulate And when things are manipulated, then trouble begins. You know the story of Sarah also. That moment when she did not trust God, what did she do? She manipulated the situation, and that got her family into a lot of trouble. I know women that husbands are not easy to love. They drive their wives crazy with madness and anger. Let us conclude this section with the words of Jill Briscoe. She writes, Imperfect wives should love their imperfect husbands as perfectly as possible. I like that. Imperfect wives should love their imperfect husbands as perfectly as possible. Men and women are not perfect, and yet the Bible calls the women to a set of responsibility. And in these responsibilities, they are to try to do their best for the glory of God. Submit to husband and cultivate inner beauty. 
These are your responsibilities as a wife, as a woman. Now, husbands, it is your turn. Verse 7. Husbands, likewise, deal with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter is very clear. The first responsibility of the husbands, number one, is to understand your wife. Is to make the effort to understand them. Now, I know you are sitting there right now, men. And you are shouting in the quietness of this place, no one can understand women. They tell me I don't need to buy them anything. And then they get mad that I didn't get them anything. I ask them how they are. They tell me everything is okay. And then I find out she's mad because I wasn't more sensitive. She tells me I don't need to do anything for the kids. And then she gets mad at me for not helping. I don't understand them. The Bible is very clear. Husbands, live with them with understanding. Just as it is hard to submit to you, the husbands, then it is just as hard to understand them. But you have to make the effort. You see, the first responsibility of the wife is the same correlating factor as the responsibility for the men. You must understand them. You must make the effort to understand them. You are to be with them, to hold them, to journey with them. That is your responsibility when you enter into the marriage covenant. Another translation translates this Greek verb to be considerate. In your understanding, you must be considerate of them to think about their spiritual needs, their emotional needs, their physical needs. All this is underlined by our need to show them unconditional love. We show our wives unconditional love when we show them that we take on the responsibility to understand them and to be considerate of their needs. As we read in our scripture reading, a section from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 reminds us that we are to love our wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ loved the church unconditionally. We are to love our wives unconditionally as well. You see, if a husband unconditionally loves his wife, she will have no problem with submitting to his authority because she will know that his desire is for her best. Did you get that? If we take the time to fulfill men, our responsibility to understand and to consider the needs of our wives then I am sure that the wives will have no problems submitting to the husband. Because she knows that in every one of his decisions, she has taken her best into his mind. You can't simply demand, wives, submit to me. Because you and I, husbands, have a responsibility to understand them, to be considerate of them. As I've mentioned many a times, my wife and I fight. We don't fight any less than you do. In fact, we fight every evening. It's a war. 
It's a battle over the temperature of the room. I sleep well when the room is cold. She sleeps well when the room is warm. In my manly logic, I've told her many times, if you are cold, then put on more blankets. Because if I'm hot, there is nothing that I can do. Right? Think about that. that that's, that's logical. I like what someone said with regards to this. He's, he said, marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too warm besides someone who's sleeping in a room that's too cold. That pretty much sums up marriage. And in this battle every evening, I want to assert my God-given authority. You must submit to me. And I want the room cold. But then when I'm reminded of this passage, husbands, dwell with them with understanding, then I've got to step back. Because in my unconditional love for her, I recognize that I must suffer in heat. I more than enough right to speak about my authority as the husband. But I'm also reminded of my God-mandated responsibility to unconditionally love my wife and to understand her needs. Because men, it begins with you. It begins with you. You will find no issues in submission when you exemplify this first responsibility to understand them to consider what they want. Part of understanding women is to understand that wives want someone who is a leader in the house. Someone who will lead them. That is what I've gathered generally from talking to many women. They want someone who will stand up and lead them. I like the story where hypothetically everyone on earth dies. And in the chaos, before entering heaven's gates, Peter tells all the men to form two lines. In one line are the men dominated by their wives. And the other line, other line are to be the men who dominate their wives. As they broke off into two lines, the line with the men dominated by their wives is hundreds of miles long. The other line, where the men dominate their wife, only has one man in it. Peter looks at this and he's angry. And he says, all of you men should be ashamed of yourself, allowing your wives to dominate you like that. Look at this man, this one man, the only one who stood up like a man. Tell me, son, Peter says to him, how did you do it? The man answers Peter, I don't know. My wife simply told me to stand here. Men, women are begging you to take the lead, to take the initiative, to stand up for what is right on behalf of them. Men, don't be lazy in the household. You are the spiritual head of the household. That is your God-given responsibility. Act as such. 
You are to lead your family in prayer. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. You are the one who has the responsibility, not your wife, to gather your family to lead them in prayer. You are the one who are to prod them to church. Your wife doesn't have to wake you up every Sunday morning and push you out of bed to come. You should be the one that gathers your family to come to church. This is your responsibility. This is what God will ask of you when you see him face to face. And he will ask of an accounting of your life. I know that a lot of you are not very lazy when it comes to your profession. But as much work and effort you put into your office and work life and your professional life, put even more effort into cultivating your family life. As much passion as you put into playing sports and whatever hobbies that you have, men, put more effort into the cultivation of your family. Because, men, that is your responsibility. God gave you children, not for your wife to raise by herself. God gave you children so that you can model what a biblical father looks like. So that if you have a daughter... She will look for a man who will treat her right. Or if you have a son, that he will grow up to be a godly young man as you have modeled it in your life. The Bible says very clearly, husbands, dwell with them with understanding. Understand the cry of their heart. They are looking for leaders in the household. The second responsibility Verse 7, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. The Bible says the second responsibility is to honor them. And honor means to treat them with respect as the weaker vessel and partner. The word uh, here used in Greek is in reference to physical or emotional weakness. This is speaking of physiology. This is not saying that God believes that men are better than women. In fact, verse 7 clears that up. Verse 7 says, you are heirs together. It means that in the sight of God, in His standing, men and women are equal. However, in the uniqueness of how God has created men and women, God has created them different in their physiology, in their emotional state. Generally, men are stronger than women. Therefore, men, you should carry things for them. Uh, My hat's off to the men who carry their wives' bags. I've never allowed myself to do that. My thinking is that if you want to carry all that stuff, you better carry it yourself. But again, as I've thought about it this week, and this verse spoke to me, like I said, I can't preach to you these things if God doesn't convict my heart first. God convicted in my heart this week that I need to learn, as much as I don't want, to try to carry my wife's bag. And I did that this Thursday, and I was real proud of myself. Her bag is heavy. No wonder she wants me to carry it for her. But God has created us physiologically different. And so we are to honor her. 
We are to treat her with respect as, note this, the weaker vessel. It is incumbent upon the husband to be chivalrous, to protect her. We honor and respect them. That is our responsibility. And this drives down into our responsibility to treat them like ladies. I remember the story of a man who accompanied himself uh, with his friend to his house for dinner. And he was very impressed by the way he entered his friend's house. Because that friend asked his wife how her day went. And told her she looked so pretty. And after they embraced, she served dinner. After they ate, the husband complimented his wife on the meal and thanked her for it. After dinner, when the two fellows were alone, the visitor asked the host, Why do you treat your wife so well? The host answered, Because she deserves it, and it makes our marriage happier. Impressed and convicted in his heart, the visitor decided to adopt this idea. Arriving home after visiting his friend's house, he embraced his wife and said, Honey, you look beautiful. You look wonderful. And for good measure, he added, Sweetheart, I'm the luckiest guy in the world to be married to you. At which point, his wife burst into tears. Bewildered, he asked her, Honey, what's wrong? What's the matter? And she wept. She said, Oh, it's been a terrible day. Billy fought at school, was sent to the principal's office, and I had to pick him up from school. And then the refrigerator stopped today and spoiled all the groceries. And then my car had a flat tire, which I had to change myself. And now you have come home drunk. What a day. Honor your wife, respect them. So that instead of being surprised, it is an intrinsic part of your relationship with each other. You know why, men? If you honor and respect them, they will also honor and respect you. You know what men crave? As I've talked to many men, generally men crave respect. They want the outside world to know that they are good people. They want their wives in public to praise them. They want their wives amongst their girlfriends to praise him. But men understand this. You must earn the praise of your wife. You cannot demand it. Did you hear that clearly? You cannot demand your wife praise you. Hey, say good things about me. Don't forget. No. A woman praises her man when he has treated her with respect and honor and is deserving of that praise. It's not like these two women. Two old friends met. One asked, how's your husband? Her pious friend smiled complacently. Oh, he's an angel. The other one replied, you're lucky. Mine's still alive. When you honor and respect your spouse, your wife, they will in turn honor you and respect you publicly. Peter was very clear why this is important at the end of verse 7. Look with me. That your prayers may not be hindered. Somehow, 
There is a correlation between how you treat your family and how you treat your wife, husbands, and in God answering your prayers. Remember, God loves the widows and the orphans. God has a special place in his heart for the women and the children. And if you treat them wrong, somehow that breaks your fellowship with God. If you want the blessings of God, then you treat your family right. Because you are under the authority of the Heavenly Father. And as your wife submits to you, you must submit yourself to God and what He calls you to do. In fact, in verse 7, the implication is that the prayers come from the men. Men, you are to lead your prayers in the household. You are to initiate this wonderful spiritual discipline as the spiritual head of the household. When you understand and honor your wife, it brings glory to God. Now, the third category is the responsibilities of all members of the family. Children, teenagers, parents, grandparents. We don't have much time to expand on these four responsibilities. But in verses 8 to 12, I believe they're pretty self-explanatory. Let me just quickly go down this list, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted and courteous. The first responsibility for all members of the family is to treat each other with compassion and respect. You know, the sad part is sometimes families treat each other worse than they treat their friends. We defer to our friends. We don't defer to our family. The Bible says this should not be, especially in the families, parents to children, children to parents, grandparents to grandkids, children to grandparents. Treat each other with compassion, with respect. Mutual respect should be what characterizes the family, especially a family that's a Christian family. Verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. The second responsibility for all members of the family is to be a blessing, not an enemy. Be a blessing, not an enemy. Do not repay evil with evil. Don't retaliate for ill treatment. Sometimes the problem with families is that they remember a lot. Fights become historical. And especially among spouses, it becomes winning and losing. The Bible says what should mark your relationship is you are to be a blessing. Do not retaliate. Don't keep up with who won, who lost. Intrinsic in that is forgiveness. Third responsibility, verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. The third responsibility for all members of the family is to watch what you say. Watch what you say. Words hurt. And they hurt deeply. If a parent keeps telling a child, you're a bad boy. You're a bad boy. Instead of speaking about their bad acts, 
and calls him a bad boy, you know what the child is going to think? Fine. If I'm a bad boy, I'll show you how bad I can be. When teenagers yell enough times, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Parents are hurt as well. When children say of their elderly, aging parents, you're too slow. You're old-fashioned. You're not with the times. It doesn't bounce off. It hurts. When parents or older parents tell their adult children, you don't know what you are doing. You're incompetent. You don't understand business. That hurts also. Watch what you say. That is the responsibility of all members of the family. The fourth responsibility, verse 11 and 12. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The fourth responsibility, seek peace. Seek peace in all of your family battles. Seek peace, the Bible says, pursue it. Even if it costs you your reputation, even if it costs you your wealth, pursue peace. Less money is okay if you get an unequal share of your family inheritance. If there is inequality in the distribution of wealth, it's okay. Seek peace. Why? Because your life is not about, the Bible says, earning money. The Bible says you have a purpose on this earth. We all do. And that is to win those who do not know Christ to Christ. And so to pursue peace, that is a responsibility for all members of the family, especially those this morning who are warring. I've spoken about a lot of things to consider. I hope that you will go home and take one or two of these principles and begin to ask God to help you in the moment to live it out for his glory. These are our responsibilities as family members, as husbands, as wives, that God has set up so that the family can be a testimony to the world. The culture today is seeing families breaking apart, marriages fail, because people are not taking up the mantle of responsibility you know what people have? People have entitlement. It's an entitlement generation. It's not a generation of responsibility, responsible people. And so kids demand things. I'm entitled to the good things of life. Husbands demand that their wives listen to them. Wives demand that their husbands are sensitive and love them. Parents demand that their kids respect them. Have they done anything to earn respect? It's because we have abdicated our responsibilities. We are no longer teaching children as parents. We want to be their friends more than we want to be their parent. The wonder children can't wait to get out from under their parents' control. We need to replace in this culture a feeling of entitlement with the pursuit of responsibility. It's not easy. But this is what the Bible has called us to do so that we can be a testimony to the world.
and in our fulfillment of these God-given responsibilities, we can find joy in the home once again. I close with the illustration of Billy Graham when he writes about his married life to Ruth Graham in his book, Just As I Am. And Billy writes this, Ruth and I don't have a perfect marriage, but we have a great one. How can I say two things that seem so contradictory? A perfect marriage? Not a perfect marriage, but a great one. In a perfect marriage, everything is always the finest and best imaginable, he writes, like a Greek statue. The proportions are exact and the finish is unblemished. Who knows any human being like that? For a marriage couple to expect perfection in each other is unrealistic. The unblemished ideal exists only in happily ever after fairy tales. Billy writes, Ruth likes to say, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. That's the truth. If two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. The sooner we accept that as a fact of life, the better we will be able to adjust to each other and enjoy togetherness. Happily incompatible is a good adjustment for a happy marriage. Happily incompatible. That should mark the relationship between each husband and wife, between each parent and child, between each grandparent and grandchild. Happily incompatible. And if you can understand this truth, knowing that God creates unique people and he often puts opposites together and with the differences in our own temperaments and personalities, if we can live happily incompatible, then the world will be able to see Christ in us and in our families. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a reminder even to me. It reminds me of the ideals and the principles that I must live up to. My own responsibilities as a husband, as a father. May it be the case also for the wives and the women. May it be the singles and the unmarried here in our congregation this morning. Would pray that their future married life, if you so will, would exemplify and be modeled by First Peter chapter 3. If there's any this morning who grew up in a dysfunctional or broken home and have no biblical model for their own married life, I pray that they would look in First Peter and see how you desire and how you ordain what a Christian family needs to look like. May it be, Lord, that in our imperfections, every one of us, through the example of Jesus Christ in his forgiveness of us on the cross and his unconditional love shown to us, that we take forth that unconditional love and forgive our family members, even those closest to us. That we may live as a testimony to the world, happily incompatible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.